so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Martin Luther King Jr. has been gone for 50 years now, but his legacy still lives on in those who shared his same passion and walked the hard road with him. Jason Cook moderated a panel of those involved on the ground of the civil rights movement, including John Perkins, Melvin Charles Smith, James Netters, and Beverly Robertson during the MLK 50 conference. We hope this episode gives you a greater love and commitment to your neighbors. I want to introduce our panelists tonight, and we're just going to hear from them. They're going to tell us a few stories. And I want to begin by introducing Beverly Robertson, who's the former president of the National Civil Rights Museum. Seated next to her is the Reverend Dr. James Netters of Mount Vernon Baptist Church, the senior pastor. You have been there for 62 years. Praise God. Mm-hmm. How many years? 62 Next to him is the Reverend Dr. Melvin Charles Smith, the senior pastor at Mount Moriah East Baptist Church. He has been the senior pastor there for 50 years. And then, of course, we've just heard from Dr. Perkins. I want to open up our time together with a general question. Dr. Netters, I'd like to begin with you. Tell us a little bit about your role during the civil rights movement. Dr. Smith has said that you were the courageous and brave one at the head of the march for the sanitation workers' strike. Tell us a little bit about that, but also where were you when Dr. King was murdered, and what was Sunday like at your church the next day? Well, first of all, I'm not sure that I'm the brave one, (laughs) but uh, my first uh, involvement or encounter with Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., was in 1963 in Washington, D.C., where he had his first prayer pilgrimage in Washington. I was helping them to put the chairs up on the stage, and it was so hot and tired, and I decided I was going to sit on the back of the stage and rest. So when the speech, when the program started, I didn't get up. So that's where I was sitting when when Dr. Martin Luther King made his famous I have a dream speech. I was sitting about 20 feet from him, (laughs) right behind him. I never dreamed, but that speech was so firing and so inspiring until it it changed my whole life. And I came back to Memphis and began to work. Wow. And where were you when you got the news that he had been murdered? I was on the ninth floor in the uh, Hotel Claridge across the street from City Hall. I was, um, I was with eight other city council persons. I was a member of the first city council in Memphis. It takes nine city council persons to override the mayor's veto. 
We were in that room that afternoon uh, and had to put on paper a resolution to give the sanitation workers everything they were asking for, union recognition, dues check off, improvement in salary, increase in working conditions, and all of the other points that went along with it. We had approved that resolution to take to the council the next day to pass and override the mayor's veto. We knew he would veto it, so we had to have nine persons in the room, nine council persons, in order to pass the resolution. When a few moments the phone rang and Councilman Pryor's wife called and says, turn the TV on. Martin Luther King had just been shot. Panic went in my whole spirit. I just went berserk. I, I said, they, they've killed my man. They've killed my man. And they were trying to get me quieted down and said, uh, Jim, wait until he gets to the hospital. Maybe he's doing, he'll be all right. I said, man, he's dead. They've killed my man. Mm -hmm. And surely enough, when they got to the hospital, the announcement came that he was dead. And, of course, that bedlam was increased in my spirit. And even more so... When two of the white council persons in that room that day decided after they heard the news that Martin had been killed that they could not support this resolution and vote for it the next day in the council because they were afraid that their constituents would feel that they were acquiescing under pressure. And they backed down. So that killed the resolution. It had to be nine or the mayor was going to veto it. So from that point on, my life went into just Bolivia. Wow. And we're I, gonna, I, I want to hear a little bit more about that here in just a moment. Uh, and I'd love for you to tell your account here in a moment of being in the march. I want to turn to you, uh, Mrs. Robertson. You said that you were a little girl. Uh, during the movement and in that moment that Dr. King was murdered, how was your life shaped and formed uh, in those moments as a young woman? Where were you when you got the news that Dr. King was murdered? And what were the following days like? Well, I was at home, having come home from school. I was 16 years old at the time. But I certainly knew of the tremendous man, pastor, leader that Dr. Martin Luther King was. So we always watched the news. So about six o'clock or a little bit before, uh, Walter Cronkite was on TV and they interrupted the news program with a special bulletin. And Walter Cronkite said very clearly, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. has been shot on the balcony of the Lorraine Motel in Memphis, Tennessee, and my mother immediately screamed, don't let him die, Lord, don't let him die, don't let him die. And so we knew immediately that we were gonna be thrown into a situation. We were not sure what it would be like. We were fearful, we were afraid, we were questioning, we were skeptical. And then about 10 minutes later, after he got to the hospital, 
Walter Cronkite again interrupted the news and said, Dr. Martin Luther King is dead. And I will tell you, the city of Memphis immediately went on lockdown. A curfew was called. If you were caught on the street after 7 o'clock, the police arrested you. Uh, they rolled in the National Guard. Tanks rolled into Memphis. Uh, and actually, the leadership felt that Memphis would erupt in violence and that blacks would burn the city down. But interestingly, a group of clergy got together and called for calm. They did an event at Crump Stadium. It was an event that included blacks and whites and Jews, Episcopalians. We all got together at Crump Stadium out of a sense of love and respect for the icon who had just been killed. And do you realize that Memphis was one of the cities that did not burn down That's right. during that period of time because of the work of the clergy? Of the clergy. Praise yes. God. Praise God. Uh, Dr. Smith, I'd love for you, were studying and working at the time underneath a virologist at St. Jude yes. during the sanitation worker strike. Yes. By the time you had got to the strike, the march had already been going, you joined at the back. Um, and right as you joined, you talk about watching the march turn around. Yes, I um, left my experiment and joined the march, which put me near the end of the march. But as the march was proceeding west and then north, I began to hear sounds of glass breakage. And it wasn't long before I saw smoke. And uh, at that time, uh, the police were there, uh, dogs were there, and the uh, crowd reversed itself. And we went back uh, down either Main or Beale. I went to Beale Street area and wound up back over near uh, the Claiborne uh, Temple area. Uh, it was, Jim was at the very front of the line, and uh, I was near the end of the line, which made me be near the front of the line getting out of that. <laughs> so uh, 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 it was a very horrible time. We, uh, I went to the uh, temple for the uh, mountaintop speech. Dr. King initially was not there. Uh, they had to call for Dr. King. It was a rainy Sunday night, and uh, I chose to go to the hospital to make some hospital visits. Uh, the next day I learned that Dr. King was not there when I was there. He did come later. Uh, and he did give that speech. And it was that uh, next Thursday, I am en route to my church to officiate a funeral. And on the car radio comes the news that Dr. King has been shot. And a few moments later, the news came that Dr. King was dead. And of course, the uh, funeral director said, you have to do this in a hurry. As Beverly just said, the city went on lockdown. You couldn't go anywhere, even the clergy. Uh, it was a very horrifying time. Uh, did go to his funeral in Atlanta, uh, which was another episode. Mm. Wow. And Dr. Perkins, you categorize yourself as a foot soldier during the movement, uh, working as a foot soldier on the ground in Mississippi and throughout the South. Uh, talk a little bit about your role in the movement and where were you when you got the news that Dr. King was assassinated? I was in a little rural town uh, called Raleigh, Mississippi, mm -hmm. you know, for the first 10 years from 1960 to 1970. Uh, I was teaching 
in rural Mississippi holding chapel program with the schools in the Mississippi. They was trying to make separate but unequal work. And I used those 10 years to, to those first years to hopefully anchor our children in a sort of a spiritual foundation. And when I spoke, we spoke at that chapel and I went home, which was about 35 miles away. And when I drove in home, my children began running out to meet me. And they said, Dr. King has been killed. And that was some moment. And the phone calls began to come from the 15 schools I'd been working in, want me to come back and to commemorate, to keep the kids calm, but I could only go to the one I had already planned to go to. That was some moment. And I admire these guys as I sit here now, I'm listening at the Black National Negro Anthem over the hill. How we got to where we at is on the backs of these people and these leaders here. And I'm so absolutely humble Amen. and honored Amen. to be part of trying to bring some reality to their suffering and their pain. So I'm, I'm absolutely honored. This is a, they brought us here. They made it possible for me to be speaking here tonight. It made it possible for me to free me to try to tell the truth. We couldn't have done that before. Sometimes people ask me will we have any progress or not. Oh, Lord, there have been a paradigm shift. And I'm only here because of you people. Amen. So I'm honored. Amen. It's a fulfillment for my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren to say, that I live and y'all live long enough that I can spend this evening with you. Amen. Thank you. Um, Ms. Robertson, as the second president of the National Civil Rights Museum, as a black woman, you led the National Civil Rights Museum through a lot of change. Um, there are many black women here. If you are here as a black woman, make some noise. Um, as a black woman in that space, leading a national project that has the uh, potential impact and influence of millions. One, what were some of your favorite moments? But two, how would you encourage other black women who may feel uh, left out or left behind, marginalized, or as you say, disenfranchised? Well, I guess the first thing that I would say is, 
If there are people in this audience who have not been to the National Civil Rights Museum, you better get up right now and go. It is it is one of the world's greatest jewels because a site of a great crucifixion has been turned into a site of a great resurrection. Say that. And you will understand what I mean when you visit that site and you understand the history. You understand that it wasn't just a battle for equality for African Americans alone. Others benefited from the work that was done that we may have started, but others helped to participate in. And I will simply say to you, if you go to that site and you can't find your voice there too, something is wrong. (laughs) Because you should be able to find your voice there. And what I would say to young people today, I look at the young people marching, I look at the Me Too movement, I look at the women who are running for office. Uh, I know that sometimes we are indeed marginalized. We are neglected. We are ignored when we speak. But we have a voice. And we are going to use that voice to drive change in America. Amen. Watch out. So we look forward to challenging them on the backs and the shoulders of Fannie Lou Hamer, Indira Gandhi, Gandhi. Uh, Coretta Scott King. These are folks that we should admire and respect because what they have been able to do, not just for their city, not just for their country, but for this world. And you can do it too. Amen. 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 Dr. Netters, um, I didn't know this until a few moments ago, but you are 90 years old. And just one thing about Dr. Netters and Dr. Smith, y'all, they text like 20-year-olds, all right? Uh, But in your 90 years of living, in 62 years at Mount Vernon Baptist Church, Westwood, um, piggybacking off of what Ms. Robertson has just said, what are some of those things that you've seen change through the years? And what are some of those things that uh, maybe some road that is still yet to be walked? I'm I'm proud to say that um, I have witnessed... uh, a tremendous change in the city of Memphis and even in the whole United States, but particularly in the city of Memphis because prior to that, we couldn't even get some of the most important people in our city like uh, 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 Dr. and lawyer Ben Hooks and, uh, uh, and others who ran for office. They couldn't, have, they couldn't get elected. Mm-hmm. But, the, but the government changed in the city of Memphis from... Uh, from a commission form of government to a mayor council form of government. And we have been able to elect black officers in every level of city government. Judges are administrators in the, from city and city council. And, and all parts of the city now have elected officials. But I see so many changes in the corporations in Memphis. I see executive vice presidents, and even presidents of companies like FedEx and other companies, Coca-Cola, and the city of Memphis, where you could hardly get a job. Well, for instance, when I first came on the city council, there was only one black person in the uh, MLGW, or light, gas, and water of the city of Memphis, Mm. uh, only one black person on staff in that company. 
and we furnished energy, light, gas, and water for the whole county. And there was only one black in there, and she was the maid mm. serving lunch wow. when we had uh, meetings at, at lunchtime. But uh, I, I, I saw, I was fortunate to put one, the first commissioner, black commissioner on the, on the uh, 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 MLGW board. And in 204, I served on, I served on that commission myself uh, for 20 years. In 204, I retired from Light, Gas, and Water as interim president and chairman of the board. Wow. I've seen some changes wow. in Memphis and in city schools. I've seen the city school move from the city unto the county, and all of these are wonderful changes that I can be proud of. Wow, praise yes. God. Yes. Uh, Dr. Smith, you have for the more than 20 years worked with young black men in your neighborhood, yes. um, and that has cost you mm. a lot mm. of your time, of your own uh, money. Uh, when you think about the last 50 years since Dr. King's assassination, what has the movement cost you, other clergy members, uh, but what have we gained, in your eyes, being at Mount Moriah East for 52 years? What have we gained? From well, obviously, it costs time that we should be giving, which is not a void. Uh, but there are tremendous gains that I am able to uh, report. I'll give you one small instance. My brother and I were put off the bus mm. because we sat too close to the front when I was nine and he was seven. My brother became the first black president and general manager of the bus company. That's right. He sure did. He sure did. Yes. He did. Yes. He did. Yes. He did. Yes. I, I have seen so many good and positive changes in all areas of our city. The affluence of African Americans and business and residences in their personal being. We still have a long way to go. I'm working with young men every week, some of whom have been incarcerated. I have two programs going for those guys, and I'm seeing a change in them. Uh, they see uh, more positive things going on in their own lives. So it hasn't really cost us more than we should have paid in the first place. That's a good word. That's a good word. Uh, Dr. Perkins, many of us have been inspired. We know the story of the beating you took in that jail. And we've watched your response to that gross injustice. And I continue, and many of us continue to follow in your example. But you've been fighting for a long time. Uh, what progress have you seen in the last 50 years? And maybe what piece of advice would you give to those of us of a younger generation who continue to struggle? Yeah, the, the night that I spent in torture in the Brandon jail was a pivot point in my life. It was in that night I saw the horror of racism. Y'all got to know what torture is. Torture is to bring you to the place that you are dying. And torture makes you do three things. First, you will tell probably the truth. The second, you'll tell a lie. Or the other, 
you'll say what the torture wants you to say. That's the nature of torture. But when I looked and saw the ugliness, the climax of what you would call white racism, I began to think, what would my, I want my response to be? And the first thing I said, I'm a military, I was in the military. If I had an atomic grenade, I would pull the plug, and not only me, but the 23 other students that was in jail with me. Then I saw myself, my reaction would have been just as bad as their action. And that's when I cried out to God. I said, God, if I know I was bargaining with God, I know that, but I cried to God. And I said, Lord, if you let me out of this jail, I want to preach a gospel that can not only save me and other black, but I want to preach a gospel that is strong enough to save these white folk and save us together, mm-hmm. that we might be reconciled. I got out of that jail. I didn't want to do that. After I was in the hospital, I operated on after that beating. But it was the people who came around me, both black and white, who was able to pull some of that bigotry and racism out of me. And I began to see and rededicate my life to the promise I made to God in that jail. Mm. And so when I'm talking about uh, us doing it together, I feel strong that we can do it. And I feel strong that we got to find places of forgiveness of sin. That's the main work that Jesus came into the world to do. And I've learned so much from people like you. I've learned so much from the killing down in, in, in Charleston. There is forgiveness is in our DNA. Unless we can forgive other people of their sin, Jesus said, how do we expect us to forgive each other? And so tonight I was talking about the redemption. And that's what y'all are talking about here. Y'all are talking about forgiving. How could you manage these people if you didn't forgive them? How could you show love to them in our society? That's why I really believe that we can get there, folks. I I believe it's possible, but we got to find it. Otherwise, we're going to be like the Arab and Israel. I've been there. I've spoken there. The king of Jordan said that if a black man can be reconciled to the Ku Klux Klansman in Mississippi, he said, there's hope for us. God wants us to be salt and light, but 
the main mission of Jesus so it was so that we could have the forgiveness of sin. Forgiveness of sin. And part of our human behavior, I even believe some of our sickness and addiction has to do with our inability to forgive. To forgive. That's good. And so I, I, and I believe that that's what the gospel calls us to. Mm-hmm. He forgives our sin. Yeah. And there is full redemption. Full justification by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Amen. And that redemption is the forgiving of, of sin and we forgiving each other. That is what authentic Christianity is all about. And that's what I want to spend the remaining of mine. I'm 80, be 88 in June. I want to preach this message, and I'm inspired and inspired by you men here going through that period and is sitting here tonight and that we could be here together and that we can offer that to this new generation, that we can offer hope to black, white, and Jews and Gentiles, that we can live. We got to get there. We got to be that multitude that is standing before the throne. That is a reflection of the kingdom of God. We're supposed to be reflecting that here on earth, that his kingdom would come, that his will would be done. And his will is that we love each other and forgive each other. We can't get there without that in our world. Amen. So this is is one of the greatest honor. And I feel a little good about myself that I, y'all inspired me and I have spent this much time. And I've been to your church. I spoke at your church in, 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 in Memphis. And I believe in what's happening here in Memphis. I believe that we can get there but, but I think we got to cut out tokenism. It's too little, too late. And then we can't substitute that for human dignity. Because, because many times that reinforces our own inferiority. We don't believe we can do nothing ourselves. But it reaffirms white folks' superiority. We got to do it together. We got to do it together. And that's a joy. That's, and, and, and this would be the greatest honor that we could give to Martin Luther King and to his comrades. Yeah. That we could pass on to this generation, black and white. Because the colonel report said, just before King died in six days, he said, we are moving towards two separate nations in America. One black and poor and one white and wealthy. We are there. Four men in America own 50% of the whole economy. Justice is an economic distribution 
issue. Just as how we manage the economy, just as how we deal with the poor, the Spirit of the Lord God Almighty is upon us because it has anointed us to preach the gospel to the poor. That was the sanitation workers. And you guys champion that call. Y'all become light for me. Y'all inspired me. Amen. Thank you, doctor. Would you all stay standing and please join me in prayer? Father, this evening, I give great thanks to you that these men and women, though the road they've trod has been stony, filled with hostilities and injustices, still your truth has marched on through them. When it appeared that hope was indeed unborn, when it appeared that hope was dead, still they persevered. Father, you've given them a courage, a steadfast spirit, and a perseverance that serves not only as an Ebenezer of days in the past, but serves as a torch for us to follow. God, I thank you for them. Lord, would you multiply their influence, multiply their voices, continue to use their lives and their ministries as not only great examples, but blueprints for us. And would you indeed cause justice to roll down like a mighty rushing water in this city and in our nation? God, we love you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the ERLC podcast. Visit us online at ERLC.com or subscribe through iTunes or Google Play. And be sure to leave us a review. Join us next week as we hear from a panel about racial tension in America.